The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Exodus, chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, And all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire, and ground it to powder, and scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you, that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. 
And as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and you go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you will kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive your sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to. You behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron had made. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> well, good morning again. Studies show that our number one fear as human beings um, is public speaking. Number two is death. Uh, most of you would rather die than do what I'm doing this morning. And especially probably after you heard that text, um, you probably don't want to be the guy up here explaining what, what's going on. And uh, before I get into it this morning, I, I do need to do something. It's been said, like, if you want to know, let me tell a little story just to illustrate this. Um, two fish are swimming along. One comes to the other. One says, how's the water? The other one looks back and says, what's water? And the moral of the story is the fish is swimming in this thing. It's always been in this thing. It's always existed in this thing. It doesn't even know what water is. It's not going to, it can't answer how is the water. And there's things about being in our culture, being alive now, that we believe, that we use, um, that maybe sometimes are the foundational thoughts of our beliefs, and we're not even aware of them. Like this fish has been benefiting from water its whole life and doesn't even know it's there. And now listen, here's the problem. Because we live in a culture that is broken, we live in a culture that is affected by sin and is fallen, we have some foundational beliefs that are wrong that we filter everything else through. And many of us already, as we are reading that last part of that chapter and we started getting tense and started, all these questions started popping up, it's showing some of those proclivities that we have to push back against reality of who God is because underneath it we have this kind of foundational belief, and it's this. Here's one of them in our culture. No one has the right 
to tell anyone else how to live their life. Now, this has infiltrated our, our culture. Many of us believe it. It's being taught in schools. It's, being, it's just everywhere. Every show we watch, every song we listen to, every, nearly every politician that speaks, every artist that speaks out, underneath it there's this belief that no other person has the right to tell another person how to live their life. And we've created this asinine idea that if someone loves me, they will let me do everything that I want to do. And then, here's the asinine part, when that goes bad for me, they will be there to comfort me. So this idea of love is to allow someone step on the train tracks, get obliterated by a train, and then we need to be there and be surprised and comfort and, and provide love. We don't have, in our culture today, a good, real, true picture of love, and I'm gonna use this term, the other side of love, the love that would tackle a person that's walking on a train track, right? the love that would offend someone and hurt someone in order to prevent future suffering and future pain, future destruction. Because we have this foundational belief that it is unloving to confront someone, it's unloving to challenge someone, it's unloving to allow someone to do something that they want to do, we miss discipleship, we miss God, we miss reality. This is like, a parent, there's many studies, I could use all kinds of illustrations right now. There are many studies that say the use of cell phones, the use of tablets, the use of computers are damaging our children right now, damaging their ability to think, to process, to think long-term, to be patient, uh, to develop empathy. But it's so easy as a parent to just give them the iPad or give them the phone. And for a parent who says, you know what, no, 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 I want my kids' long-term happiness. I want their eternal happiness. So I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to pull something away from them. That parent is going to have to absorb a lot of wrath. That child is going to say, all my friends going to do it. I'm six. I need a cell phone. Everybody's got one, right? I get it. I should be able to watch 12 hours of Netflix. Sometimes they go, you do it, mom, right? Oh, and then we feel guilty right? That parent is going to have to absorb the wrath of their child. They're going to have to look like crazy people to the culture. Oh, you don't give your kid a cell phone? You don't give your kid, you know, unhindered access to the internet? Hmm. You're crazy. And the child, mom, you're crazy. You're mean. You hate me. And sometimes if we worship our children, that's the last thing we want to hear, right? You hate me. You're against me. You're mean to me. And what happens is a parent who doesn't understand the other side of love, they will never be able to withstand the pressure from the culture and from their child to give into what they want in this moment. But the mature parent who understands that love, that love has a tough side to it, right? There's a tough side to love and there's a tender side to love. 
they will have the resources to be able to really love their child into maturity so they raise a child who can actually be an adult when he gets the age up, when he gets up to being an adult, right? Won't be addicted to the cell phone. We'll be able to read a book. We'll be able to have a conversation. We'll be able to think deeply about God and understand how the, God has made the world and won't just be so tethered to entertainment, right? But it's going gonna, it's gonna to come at a cost. And so this morning, that's where I'm going. I'm going to be talking about the other side of love. I have a lot of work to do, nearly 40 verses you saw. Um, it's going to be tough. There's going to be a lot that's going to be tough. I'm praying that the Lord would use it and that his spirit would, would take my words and, and anoint them. So I'm going to pray this morning. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. Um, we, would be, we are blundering idiots walking around in the dark, unable to see who you are, and you shone into our life. You've stepped into history. You've revealed your glory, and you've given us your word to show you who you are, and you've given us your son to see who you are, and, and this word is important for us today, and I pray that we could see through the cultural blinders that put things on our eyes, and we would be able to see your goodness and your graciousness and your kindness to us. I pray that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that it would be all of you and none of me for your glory and our good this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you don't often get an intro to the intro, but that's what that was. Uh, Exodus 32 this morning, if you'd open up your Bibles. Here is the setting, and this is important for us. I'm not going to spend a lot of time going back. I'm building on like 30 weeks of sermons already. I can't do all that. Here's the setting. Moses has been up on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. God has been speaking to him giving him direction on how to build God's tabernacle, God's mobile home for their wilderness travels, that God has did something spectacular in saying, I'm not going to dwell up here on the mountain. I'm coming to live among you. I want a tent like you have a tent. I'm going to be near you and be with you. God desires to be near his people. Hear that this morning. He's moving into town. He's coming into the neighborhood. And then also while God's up, or, or God is at the top of the mountain and Moses is up there, God has already given the people the Ten Commandments. So you guys remember that? We spent weeks after weeks up, you know, on the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are basically ten, the, the perfect life, how to live the perfect life, how to live a flourishing life, right? How to build a flourishing society. God has given them the Ten Commandments. Moses came down, told them the Ten Commandments. What'd they say? Yeah, we'll do it. He went up there, talked to God again, came back down, wrote down the Ten Commandments. Here it is. This is the covenant. Covenant is you obey the law, you obey the Ten Commandments. God will bless you. You disobey, God will curse you. They say, we're in, we'll do it. Moses goes back up, gets plans for the tabernacle, and God gives him the Ten Commandments on stone. God writes them with his finger in some spectacular way. That These I'm going to say artifacts are now the most precious thing on planet earth. They, the glory of God is in them. God has touched them and filled them. And now he, Moses is going to be carrying these things down the mountain to put them in the Ark of the Covenant, which will house literally the presence of God. That's the kind of the plan. That's what's going on right now. But while Moses is on the mountaintop experiencing the presence of God, the people are, of Israel are getting anxious. Look at 32, chap, chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw 
that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, okay, now, first thing I want you to see is that this is happening because Moses delayed to come down, okay? That word delayed is the Hebrew word bosh. It means to tarry. It means to take longer than planned. The people are waiting on God and they are waiting on Moses, but this is taking longer than they expected. Now, I'm going to ask you, how do you react when your plans are on pause? How do you feel when God isn't doing things the way or at the speed that you think they should be done? Now, I think Waiting is horrible, right? I mean, five to 20 minutes, you can pull out your phone and it can distract you from it. But then what happens? Then this restlessness begins to settle in. Some of us find ourselves in that exact spot right now. We are waiting We are waiting on God and we are getting restless. We are waiting for a job. We are waiting for our career to begin. We are waiting for a season of suffering to relent. We are waiting for a spouse. Or maybe we're just waiting for God to change us. We're so tired of us. We're just waiting for God to change us. Or maybe we're waiting for God to change somebody that we love. And it's taking longer than we had planned, and we are getting restless. We're getting anxious. Well, that's exactly where we find the people of Israel in our text this morning. They're asking, what is taking Moses so long? Every other time, he's went up the mountain, he's came back down. Been up there 40 days. God's plan is not unfolding at the speed that they're expecting, and they're growing restless. And let me just say, every sin in your life, every stupid thing that you have done, every stupid thing that you do, every stupid thing that you're about to do is motivated by this sense of restlessness, this lack of patience, this lack of trust in God. There is this deep inability in us that causes all kind of problems and all kind of anxieties and all kind of phobias and all kind of addictions. There's all kind of things that are caused in our life by this deep sense, this deep inability to sit alone with God in a room and be satisfied. We are prone to get frustrated with God, frustrated with his timing, and then want to take it into our own hands, want to medicate ourselves, want to help ourselves, want to meet our own needs. And the people respond to this restlessness by doing something many of us just think is crazy, something completely shocking, something that seems Unheard of, rather extreme, overreaction. What do they do? Look at right here, verse 1. They gather themselves together to Aaron. Moses has left Aaron in charge of the people. And they say to him, up, 
Get to work, dude. Make us gods who shall go before us. Oh, as for this Moses, as for this Moses, as a pastor, I just got to be like, for real? This Moses, who's sacrificed his whole life for you, who's laid everything on the line for you, who left Pharaoh's house for you, this, this Moses? So we're going to call him now? You're not in Egyptian slavery because of this Moses? And you go, this Moses has been 40 days. Okay, I'm, let me let off, get off of that. This Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Hmm. Can you believe this? Well, now listen. I'm going to try to help us with some empathy this morning. It's not hard. It's, it's, some of us get it. Some of us are naturally empathetic. Some of us are not. We need help seeing this. And I'm hoping before I get to the last part of the text, I'm going to help us feel a little empathetic this morning. The people, here's the problem. The people feel abandoned by God. That's their feeling. They feel afraid. They feel uncertain. We've felt that before. I, hope, I think probably all of us have felt that. That God has promised to go before us. Moses has promised to lead us. But here they are. They've, they've been together doing something special up there for 40 days. They've left us alone. They've abandoned. It's 40 days. Maybe, you know what? Look at them up there. Maybe they've changed their mind. Maybe we're down here on our own. Maybe we are left to figure this out on our own. Our fearless leader and God's up there doing their thing and we're still, we need to eat, we need to figure out, we need to go to the promised land. We got a lot of stuff to do. What are we supposed to do? Just sit here and wait? I guess we better figure this out ourselves. Now, if you were to be honest, isn't this how your mind works when you get restless? You start feeling a little bit like an orphan who's all alone in this world, and you must protect yourself. You must provide for yourself. You must produce a future for yourself. Here I am again. No one cares about me. No one is looking out for me. I've got to take care of me. No one else will. Now, why is this the case? Well, listen, for the Israelites, it's really clear. They have been enslaved all their lives. They have been oppressed by Egypt and Pharaoh for generations, and they have some deep-seated wounds. The Israelites have been, listen, sinned against their entire lives. They've been victimized. That is going to make an indelible mark upon their soul. They are going to have some emotional scars, some PTSD. They're going to have it. From that kind of trauma, the human being isn't made for that kind of trauma. When they're in that kind of trauma, the body, the mental, our mental ability, it breaks down. Our soul is damaged. 
And even though this situation, hear this, listen, this situation is not like what happened in Egypt. It might feel like it to them. God, in their minds, abandoned us for 400 years in Egypt and we were treated mercilessly and here we go again. Moses and God have left us again. Now, in some ways, we are all in the same spot. Every one of us have been sinned against by others. Every one of us have been through seasons, or maybe we're in a season, or we're going to go through a season of suffering that wounds us deeply. We have been hurt, and we have been wounded by people, by leaders, by churches, by businesses, by coaches, and we bear the scars on our souls. We may even feel like God has hurt us. He's wounded us in some way. And listen, that wound is going to affect the way we interpret the experiences of our lives. And first, I want to acknowledge that this morning. We are all sufferers in some way. Because of Adam and Eve's original sin, all of creation has suffered the consequences. In a primordial sense, that is not our doing We are suffering in a world that is broken by the sin of two people that we have never met. We have suffered abuse and trauma and loss at the hand of others, and all of that has stemmed from what happened in Genesis 3. And that wasn't our fault. So in a very real sense, we are all victims and sufferers. We've all been on the receiving end of someone else's neglect, abuse, and sin. All of us have felt the pain of that. But there's another side of love, and there's another side of this story. Scripture tells us that we are not just sufferers. We are also sinners. Moses and God have not abandoned the people. They feel like he has. But their feelings are wrong. And I realize I just committed a postmodern sin by saying that. If you're a postmodernist, remind yourself that there's no such thing as sin in your own worldview. I can't sin if there's no sin. I'm sorry. They're not just sufferers, they're sinners. They feel like God has abandoned them, but he hasn't. Their feelings, listen, have been formed by their past abuse, and therefore their experiences are off. Their interpretation of what's going on in the event is off. They have a faulty navigational device for their life. If their feelings are their primary navigational device, that thing is broken and it's off. They were formed. Their feelings and emotions have been formed inside a traumatic experience and they might have been helpful during their time as slaves in Egypt, right? It might have prevented them future abuse and it might have been beneficial in some way. But now... 
They're not in Egypt anymore, and they're not being led by Pharaoh, and they're not being abused by their leaders, and so that faulty navigational device is broken, and it's no good where they're at right now. Moses goes off for 40 days, and they think, he's abandoned us again. We're on our own. Figure it out. Now listen, think about this. They have been redeemed. They have been saved. They have been set free from their slavery by the good God who loves them deeply. God has saved them. He's protected them. He's provided for them over and over. We got bread coming out of the sky. We got quail landing, you know, every other day for for meat or whatever they wanted. We got God, you know, providing water. We got God giving them leaders. We've got God protecting them from outside nations that are trying to attack them. We've got God doing all of this thing, all of these great things for them. But as soon as they feel like God has abandoned them, they abandon him. They are not orphans. They have been adopted. But that doesn't change the way they feel in the moment of delay. Here's the scary truth. They trust their feelings of fear and abandonment more than the God who loves them. This is what it means to be a sinner. They don't trust God. When their feelings go off, they run the other way from God instead of running to him. They take their faith off of God and they put it on to something else, namely themselves. He's not taking care of me. I'll do it on my own. This is idolatry. It's putting your heart's trust, your faith in something other than God to rescue you from your fears. That's exactly what the Israelites do. They take things into their own hands and make for themselves a God who will give them what they want. Namely, right now, they are afraid and they say they want a God to go before them. And so they make a God who they can see and they can touch. A God they know will be there when they need it. Which which is kind of funny to me because the only way this God goes before them is if they carry it. Which is the ludicrous, you know, the lunacy of idolatry. You make it and expect something from it. You made it. There's no supernatural power there. There's no resource in it except what you've put in it. You want this God to go before you. It's on your own strength. You got to carry it. Now listen, this is the default mode of the human heart. God is God. He operates on his own schedule. His ways are not our ways. His plans are not our plans. And because we are sinners, we reject him. We do not want to trust him when things get scary. We want a God we can control, and so we choose to worship other things. This is what it means to be a sinner. John Calvin said that the human heart was a factory of idols. That our heart manufactures false gods, one after the other. 
We, get, we can get down. You, you talk about money. You can talk about sex. You can talk about relationships. But then if you really get down under those surface things, get down deep, you find that there's really four things that motivate us to worship false gods. And those things are comfort, control, success, and security. And these are things that our heart tends to want more than God. And this is idolatry, and this is sin. I think it's interesting here that it's the default mode of the human heart. This is what we're born into, thanks Adam and Eve. And it's kind of interesting. This is how Aaron responds. He says this about the people. When Moses asks him what happens later on, he says, you know the people. They're set on evil. Set on evil. Sounds like John Calvin. Says they're set on evil. Think about a thermostat. You set a thermostat on 70 degrees and it stays on 70 degrees. It stays there until someone changes it. And he's saying, Aaron says, the people are set on idolatry. They're set on evil and they're going to stay there forever until somebody changes them. It's interesting, too, that he doesn't say, well, God, you know their story. You know how broken they are. You know where they come from. You know they're sufferers. He says they're set on sinning. They're sinners, God. Listen, I want you to hear this. We're sufferers. The people in this text are sufferers, but they're also sinners, and this is what that means. Because we're sinners... We respond sinfully to suffering. Because we're sinners, we respond sinfully to suffering. These people feel like orphans. They feel like they've been abandoned. Listen, those feelings are not a sin. When you're suffering and you're feeling loss and you're feeling grief and you're feeling pain, those feelings, and sometimes you're feeling abandoned by God, those feelings are not a sin. They're wrong. They're off. You haven't been abandoned. He's there with you. But they're not sin. But the people have chosen to respond sinfully to their suffering by worshiping idols, and that is a sin. I feel hurt by God. I'm leaving the church. I feel abandoned by God. I'm going to my job to find my security, my peace, and my happiness. God's not really doing it. I'm going to pursue another spouse. I'm going to pursue an affair. I'm going to pursue some other thing. You feel lost. You feel broken. You feel like you're suffering in a tough marriage. And therefore, you feel it is now excused to respond to this suffering in sinful ways. That is sin. And so the people, here is where this is dangerous. The people gather themselves together and they go to Aaron, the guy that Moses has left in charge, the associate pastor, and they go and they say this, make us an idol. And Aaron is a great example of a weak leader of a sinful leader, of a leader with no spine. 
actually, he's a great, uh, he's a great example of a postmodern leader. What do you want? Oh, another God? Okay. Sure. I'll give you that. Look at verse so Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, bring them to me. So all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf, a cow. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel. The, that's what the people said. Aaron made the God. The people said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. No, God brought you out of Egypt, but they're giving credit now to this calf, this idol. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Aaron goes in on this, and Aaron made a proclamation. Look what Aaron said, tomorrow shall be a feast. Look, to the Lord. See, Aaron thinks he's just making an idol that represents Yahweh. The people want anything. I don't care who it is. These are our gods that go before us. Aaron's like, oh, I think, no, no, I'm pretty sure God brought us out. But I'm going to take, you know, your kind of everything goes view of life, and I'm going to kind of blend it with Christianity. I'm going to blend it with Yahweh here. And I say, okay, well, uh, I'm not that far yet. But this is breaking the second commandment, worshiping the Lord in an improper way, making an idol. In Aaron's mind, he's making an idol that represents God in some way. God's strong like a bull or something like that. Still a sin, it's still wrong. And the people, they don't care. Just give me something to worship, something I can touch and see. And listen to what he keeps saying. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. They're happy. They got a God they can see and touch, God who's right here with them. Let's party. We're good. And the Lord says to Moses, Go down. For your people. This is kind of tough because God has always called them my people, my people, my people. And he says, go down your people. You know what this is like, parents. When dad gets home, he's like, you better take, she's like, you better take your son outside. Well, I thought we both made him. I didn't know. He's mine now. When they're disobedient, they're somebody else's. Take, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. Look at this have corrupted themselves. We believe that because we're sufferers, we can't be blamed for our sin. Look how I was raised. Look what I'm going through. Look how difficult my marriage is. I sit across the desk for 15 years. I've sit across the desk from men that look at me and they tell me how awful their marriage was and they want me to feel sorry for them and excuse the, the reality that now they're committing adultery. And God looks at them and he knows their suffering. He knows their pattern of abuse. He knows everything they've been through. And he says, your people have corrupted themselves. They're sinners who've responded sinfully to their suffering. They have, look, turned aside quickly out of the way that I've commanded. They've, yeah, we'll follow you. They've turned aside quickly. These are all just other ways of saying they've sinned. They have made for themselves a golden calf. They have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Listen, because we really do suffer, and we are really sinned against by others, there is a temptation in us to think, because I feel this way, I have a right to respond sinfully. My idolatry is not my fault. In fact, it's God's fault. He must have made me this way. He's the one who allowed me to have those parents and grow up in this culture and have that teacher and be in that relationship. He's the one who gave me that job. He's the one who got me here. God says, nope. You have responded sinfully to the suffering that's been sent to you to make you better. The discipline that he's brought into our life, the suffering that he's allowed is meant to be for his glory and our own good, and we hate it, we reject it, and we respond sinfully to it. He says, no, 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 you're not going to put the blame on me. You have done this. You have destroyed your marriage. You have ruined your life. You sinned. You are culpable, and until you own it, you will never experience freedom. You'll never experience growth. You'll never experience change until you can admit that, confess your sin, and turn from your false God and place your faith again in the real God. You aren't just a sufferer who needs a therapeutic answer. You're a sinner who needs the grace of God in Christ that's found through repentance. And it's really interesting. There's this principle in the Bible that you become like what you worship. If you worship God, you become more and more like him, more gracious, more kind, more long-suffering, more patient, more secure. But if you worship an idol, any idol, anything other than God, you become more and more like it, more and more lifeless. The Israelites make a golden cow and they begin to worship it and they begin to resemble stubborn, rebellious livestock. Moses says in verse 25 that the people have broken loose, that Aaron let the people break loose. Think of that. That's a livestock metaphor that the people have broken out of their pens. People have broken loose. He calls them a stiff-necked people, right? If you've ever tried to turn a cow, right? Most of us in this room probably haven't, but we're from, you're five minutes away, so you should, you know, from a lot of cows. And I grew up in North Scott, so I have tried it. Uh, you try to turn an animal. It ain't happening, right? They, they stiffen their neck. They won't change. They won't change direction. They want to go where they want to go. They've become, these, the people of Israel have become just like their idol, stiff-necked. It means they're obstinate. They don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to be told how to do it. Now listen, can you just see the problem that this creates? They are deeply wounded people, deep emotional scars, but they're also willfully disobedient to God, the one who can heal them and, and provide for them 
and satisfy them, right? They are willfully disobedient. They are stubborn and set on their idolatry and set on their sin. How do you help people like that who are so wounded they can't respond to their situation in a correct way, who can't see what God's doing, but they're also so sinful and so stubborn that every time you try to help them, they freak out, right? Every time you try to help them, they resist and and, and get stiff-necked. This is like the child with the sore throat who the mom is trying to give the medicine to and the child refuses. They refuse, they're set. I will not take that stuff from you. I know you're trying to kill me with it. You hate me, mom. You hate me, I resist it, never, I'm not doing it. And the mom, this is going to make you better. Obstinate. I think most of us as parents today, maybe, we'll be fine and forget it. Have a sore throat. I had a mom who grabbed my face like this. <laughs> ah! Let me just say, this is a picture of all of us. There is a sense where we are all resistant to the doctor's orders. We are stiff-necked in our idolatry. And what is God's response? I'm going to destroy them. I'm sending my wrath down. And Moses, I'll save you. I'll make a great nation out of you. I'll be faithful, but I'm going to make it out of you. Everybody else, I'm done with them. But here's something so interesting. The grace of God. The grace of God has been changing Moses. If you're on the mountain and you're Moses, what do you say at this moment? You know what I say? (laughs) Do it! Me and you, God, make me a great nation. Let's go. My job just got a whole lot easier. But the grace of God has been changing Moses. He's a far different man than he was in the beginning chapters of Exodus. He knows God. He knows that God is kind and gracious and slow to anger, that he is long-suffering and he's forgiving. And so Moses intercedes for the people. Look at verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Look at this. So first thing he says, first thing is he, he, he reminds God of his own work. He, he reminds God of his nature. He reminds God of his character. God, you are redemptive. God, you are gracious. God, you reached down and saved your people. It's rede- Moses reminds him of his redemption. Then look, keep going, verse 12. Then he says, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster for your people. What's the second one? First one, he says, God, you're, remember, you're redemptive. Remember, you save wicked, broken people. Remember, you do that. Then he says, God, think about Egypt. 
What are the nations going to say if you've saved your people only to bring them out here and destroy them? God, Moses reminds God, God, you're missional. God, you want the other nations to worship you, the other nations to know you. If they see you destroy your people, what are they going to think about you? He says, God, you're redemptive. God, you're missional. And the third thing, God, you are covenantal. Verse 13, remember Abraham, remember Isaac, remember Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self, you said to them. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Moses reminds God of the gospel. His redemption, his mission, his covenant. Now what's interesting is Moses doesn't go, God, they just got out of Egypt. Don't you remember their schedule in Egypt? They worked all day in Egypt. They're stressed out. God, they were abused in Egypt. God, give them a break. Give them another chance, God. They deserve it. Can't you see how difficult their life is? Can't you see they're sufferers? They're an impossible situation. That is not how Moses intercedes. Moses' intercession is 100% focused on God and who God is. He says, God, you remember you redeemed your people? You remember you have a mission for the world? You remember you made a covenant? It's almost as if Moses is reminding God of the gospel, of his gospel. Now, this isn't because God has forgotten it. This was God showing us and his people the difference between Moses' strong, redemptive leadership and Aaron's people-pleasing leadership. You got one guy who will give you anything you want. You got another guy who will beg for you on the mountain. Aaron is the leader our flesh is looking for. He's the preacher who gives the people everything they want. He leaves them happy and feeling good, feeling good about themselves. They walk out ready to tackle their week, just a little bit of encouragement. He isn't confrontational. He doesn't rebuke their idolatry and call them back to worship the one true God. He says, eh, we're all on a journey. However you want to worship him, you worship him your way. God will understand. The Apost- I've got a scripture up here. The Apostle Paul tells preachers to preach the word, to be- preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Like animals who've broken loose with stiff necks, they will accumulate teachers to tell them what they want to hear. 
Paul says God calls spiritual leaders to be like Moses. Redemptive and yet strong. But our flesh wants leaders like Aaron, make me feel good. Tell me what I want to hear. Now listen, it is my job and the elders and the deacon's job to continually, lovingly, graciously pushing back on your sinful heart and remind you of God's graciousness to us in the gospel. And that is confrontational, but it's meant to be redemptive. Indeed, it's the other side of love. It is motivated by a soft heart towards God and a desire for the people to experience all that God has for them. But it takes a steel spine to walk it out. And that's what the rest of this chapter is all about. Verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. He's got the stone tablets in his hand. The most precious thing on planet earth is in his hands. God, Yahweh, has made a covenant with his people. And here's the proof. He wrote it in his hands. He's walking down the mountain with these stones. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted. He said, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the shout of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. You know what this is like? This is like people on the Titanic. As this ship is sinking, it's collapsing into the ocean and certain death is imminent. The band still plays. Maybe some still sing. Maybe some still still dance. Some of us would rather be completely ignorant of what's going on around us, the destruction that's certain. Just play me a song and let me sing. Just let me be happy for a moment. They're down there worshiping a false god. But they're good. Verse 19, and as soon as Moses, he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. Moses, listen, Moses loves the people. Moses loves the God. He's already been gracious and redemptive before God and didn't say, just wipe them out. He said, no, God, remember who you are. Remember your plan. Remember your covenant. Save them. But when Moses sees their idolatry, his anger burns hot. And I'm going to tell you, this is the other side of love. Now, this doesn't mean that Moses lost it. This doesn't mean that Moses sinned. He doesn't sin. Bible tells us, be angry and sin not. This does not mean that Moses is acting impulsively or he is somehow out of control. God has just given the Ten Commandments to the people, and they've all agreed wholeheartedly to obey them. They agreed to the stipulations of the covenant, and they've already, listen, listen, broken their agreement. 
And Moses says, you've broken covenant? Boom. Before Moses could even get down the mountain, they had already broken their commitment with God. They'd already broken the first and second commandment. And Moses, in his righteous anger, gives the people a visual representation of what they had already done. He breaks the covenant. He breaks the tablets of stone. You have broken faith with God. Boom. Verse 20. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. That's strong leadership. That's a man who loves God and loves his people enough to offend them. You know what it's like? It's like, you know, when you said that word when you were a kid, if you were like me, you had the soap. You want to say bad words? It's going to taste bad in your mouth. You want to, you want to worship another God? I want you to taste it. Vile, burnt, destructive, false God. I want you to feel it. I want you to know what you've done. Well, you know, it feels terrible when you're getting your mouth washed, but you, you know, hopefully you're going to remember that. Verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, God's man confronting the sinful, fleshy, weak leader, Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. Moses, chill. You know the people. They're set on evil. It's not my fault, Moses. The people are crazy. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought, you, brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So I said to them, uh, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. I'm not to blame. It's the people. Aaron doesn't own his sin. Aaron is stiff-necked. And he blames it on the people. I'm just a sufferer here. Sufferer here, Moses. You know what it's like to lead tough people. Can't blame me. Blame the people. Verse 25, And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose. We can see very clearly where the blame gets placed on weak leadership. To the derision of their enemies. 
You're a laughingstock to the surrounding nations. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Now listen, this is a call to repentance. You've all went away. You're all stiff-necked. You've all broken loose. You've all sinned against the God who saves you and the God who loves you. Now, here's the deal. Line in the sand. Who's on the Lord's side? Come over here. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel to the sons of Levi, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Now, this scene is shocking to us, no doubt. First off, let me just say, we are not living in the old covenant. This is a nation God is rising up. So God never commands us to do anything like this now. So say that. But this scene, I think, is probably shocking to us for all the wrong reasons. We read this and go, why would God tell Moses to kill these people? But do you see what they have done? They have all broken the commandments. They've all worshipped a false god. And now on top of that, to add insult to injury, they have refused to repent. They've all sinned against the one who loves them and has saved them and redeemed them and set them free from slavery. And God has given them a way for all of them to be forgiven. It's really simple. Repent. Confess your sin. Own your sin. Here's the line. Don't be over there. Come over here. Be on the Lord's side. So simple. And the shocking thing is that out of over a million people, some scholars say up to 2 million people here, 3,000 of them are so stiff-necked that they say, no, forget you, Moses. Forget Yahweh. I'm on my own side. Only God can judge me. He is. And for the person who rejects God's only offer of salvation and refuses to repent, there is no hope for them. Now, the reality is the same question and the same consequence is before us all today, except it's Jesus who stands before us saying, who is on the Lord's side? Who is on my side? Come to me. All you are weary and heavy laden. Come to me and I will give you rest. But if you reject his call, 
If you say, no, I'll figure it out on my own. No, I want my own way. No, I'm not repenting. I'm not coming to you. And you will spend eternity separated from the God that you don't want anything to do with. And you know what that is? That's hell. There is no love. There is no light. There is no joy in the place away from God because God is the only source of those things. And so on earth, when you say, God, stay away from me, he gives you what you want in eternity. Now, you might not think that this is that big of a deal. Like, they're sinners. They sin. What's the big deal? They made an idol. It's no doubt that the people and Aaron, they don't think what they did is a big deal. He's been gone for 40 days. We're justified. We can do this. But look what Moses says in verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. Moses says, you have sinned a great sin. He says to God, they have sinned a great sin. The same is true for us. You may say, well, I've never built a god of gold. You don't need to build a God of gold. Your, your car will do. Your work will do. Your spouse will do. We've worshiped other things. And the reality is there is no small sin because there is no small God to sin against. When we sin against God, we deserve his wrath to fall upon us. God would have been good and just and loving to obliterate the people in this moment because they've sinned against him. But God is more than just that. He's gracious and long-suffering and merciful. And all of us in this room who have sinned against him deserve his righteous wrath. We deserve his judgment. Let's keep reading. 30 to 32. But if, but now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, look, 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 please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. God tells Moses here in verse 33 that the righteous judgment for those who sin against God is for them, listen, to be blotted out of his book. This is the book of eternal life. Only those whose name is written in the book will receive eternal life when they die. God says that those who break his commandments and sin against him by worshiping other things will have their names blotted out of the book of eternal life. That's a problem for us. It's a problem for the people. So do they have any hope? They've sinned against him. What's their hope? They're blotted out of the book. Moses says, you repent. You confess. Here's the line. You confess. You repent. I'll go to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement 
That word atonement, it literally means at one meant. Two parties, one of them has been sinned against, one of them is violated, one of them owes the other party something. And atonement brings these two parties back into alignment, back into agreement. Now here's the problem. God has been offended by all of our sins. We've sinned against God. He's never done anything to us. He's the only offended party. What could a a constant offender like us, a sufferer and a sinner like us, ever do to atone for what we've already done? Here's the reality. We've sinned against a perfect God. There's nothing we could do to atone for our sins. The reality is that Moses himself, he's a sinner too. He can't atone for their sins. He can go up and he can beg God, but he can't say, God, take my righteousness. God, do it because I've asked you to do it. Moses has nothing to give God that's going to make these two offended parties one. It's going to forgive these two offended parties, or this one offended party, God. But what all of this is meant to do is point us to the arrival of the one who could make atonement, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true and better Moses, hear this, that can go into the presence of God as sinless and can say, take my life for theirs. God, the other side of your love, the wrath that needs to be poured out, don't pour it out on them, pour it out on me. And God says, okay. And God crushes his sinless son instead of you instead of me. And because of that, Jesus says, now take my righteousness, my perfect record, my perfect obedience to the Ten Commandments, and then apply it to your people. Give them my righteousness so when you look at them, you don't look at them as just sinners. You look at them in sons and daughters who've been forgiven by you. And God says, yeah, I'll do that too. And God gives us, through faith, the righteousness that is Christ's. It's counted to us. If we confess our sin, if we change our direction in life, repent. That's what repentance means, changing our direction and put our faith in Jesus. Listen, our names will be written forever in the Lamb's book of life, and we will live in eternity with him, happy, satisfied, saved. You're not going to, if you put your life in Christ, You're not going to wonder, am I in the book? Am I out of the book? Am I in the book? Am I out of the book? Am I in the book? Am I out of the book? As I close, look what Revelation 3 verse 5 says. This is Jesus speaking, the resurrected Jesus. The one who conquers, conquers there, that means this, keeps the faith. The one who doesn't worship idols, the one who when he's suffering, goes to Christ, goes back to Christ, puts his righteousness in Christ, put his hope in Christ, put everything in Christ. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. One day we'll be, we won't be sinners. We'll be washed clean. And look, Jesus, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Even better I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. That Jesus who's gone before us in the inner holy of holies, who's in the presence of God, 
we put our faith in Christ, we'll never be blotted out of his book. And we get at the end of our life, when our days on earth are done, we'll stand before God and Jesus will confess our name before God. That's your son, Father. My blood was spilt for him. My blood's been applied to him. My righteousness has been applied to him. By faith, he's yours. Moses, come in. I just want to hear God saying your name. Come in because of the work of Jesus. Come in. Father, your gospel is so confrontational, so abrasive, so contradictory to what we feel and what we kind of want to be true in this world that we live in, and yet it smells so good. There's something about it that tastes so right. There's something that feels so true about it. We are suffering sinners who respond sinfully to suffering, and yet you reach down and redeem us, and all you ask is for us to turn from our idolatry and turn to the real God who loves us and saves us and gave his own son for us. And I pray that the power of your spirit, you would enable us to do that this morning. Help us see you as good, kind, glorious, gracious. And as Christians come this morning to take the Lord's Supper, we'd be reminded Jesus took our wrath. Jesus took the sword for us. His body was broken and his blood was shed so that we could get the other side of love. We could get the gentleness of God, the kindness of God. Jesus took the wrath. so we could experience the soft hand of a father. May we eat it in faith. In Jesus' name.